VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Tuesday, November 22nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing this morning. So, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I guess the stormy week continues. Plenty of complaints about snow clearing or the lack thereof, salting or the lack thereof in many parts of the province. So watch yourself if you're out traveling around today and or give us a call to let us know what you see where you are. All right, one more sleep. One more sleep until Canada makes its reappearance at the World Cup of Soccer, of course being held in Qatar. We haven't been there since 1986, but we kick off our tournament tomorrow against Belgium. It's a big ask. We've never had a clean sheet, which means give up zero goals in a match, nor have we ever scored a goal at the World Cup, so the bar's set pretty low, but Canadians seem to be pretty optimistic about this tournament, not talking about, you know, even getting through the group, let alone winning it, but anyway, tomorrow, and a lot of it rests on the shoulders of the Alfonso Davies of the world. I don't think he's 100% fit either, but looking forward to the match, which is 3.30 island time tomorrow afternoon. And I see this morning coming from Qatar at the World Cup, an absolute stunner. One of the biggest upsets in tournament history, I would think. Argentina, which had won 36 straight games, lost this morning to Saudi Arabia. Argentina, number three in the world. Saudi Arabia, number 51. And they pulled off the massive upset this morning. That's really quite something. And I don't know how often it's happened in the past where both Newhook and Mercer score on the same night, but they did it last night. Newhook gets his fourth of the year. Dawson Mercer gets his fifth of the year. He actually had an assist as well. So nice night for the Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, two first-rounders hitting the score sheet. All right. I don't know if you've seen this particular documentary. I remember seeing it, and I believe the first time I watched it was in school. It was 57 years ago today that Miss Goodall and the Wild, Champ- uh, Wild Chimpanzees, it was a documentary brought forward by National Geographic Film, premiered on CBS, and of course the world met young primate ethnologist Jane Goodall, of course documenting her work in Tanzania. So here's a, an interesting quote coming from Miss Goodall about this. I was just an ordinary little girl, born loving animals, loving nature, and I think, you know, the importance of my mother's role is that when everybody else laughed at me, when I wanted to go to Africa and live with the animals, write books about them, I was just 10. Instead of laughing at me, she just said, if you work hard and take advantage of opportunities and don't give up, you know, you'll get there. I'd say she got there, one of the most famous uh, women in the world, for sure. So when it was rebroadcast on CBS, 25 million viewers tuned in to catch it. So... Miss Goodall and the Wild Chimpanzees today, 1965. Yeah, 65. Okay, let's keep going. So we know that DFO is going to be unable to do any of the fish stock surveys this year, all the issues regarding the vessels. Okay. Here comes a report, a fisheries audit, done by an environmental group called Oceana Canada. It's their sixth annual audit. So here's some of the numbers they brought forward as they assessed 194 fish stocks in Canada. 30% are in the healthy zone. And that's what DFO considers sustainable for fishing. That's down from 34% in 2017. It says 15% are in the cautious zone, where harvesting needs to be considered and possibly reduced. The status of 37% of fish stocks is uncertain, says the report. 17% are in the critical zone, so serious harm is taking place. Less than 20% of those critically depleted stocks have any plan to rebuild them, which is just simply amazing. So... 
72% of DFO's management documents do not even formally consider climate change. And we know the impact that the warming sea temperatures has on fish stocks and their route, and the migratory routes they take. So when the government has spent a fair bit of money, you know, it was just recently they put in a mandatory three-year rebuilding plan when one stock uh, arrives in the cautious zone, which is unreal. 2018, they put forward $120 million to improve stock provisions. Not much has taken place. There's also a big pot of money at Oceans Protection Plan, $3.5 billion over nine years. That's looking at everything inside the marine ecosystems, uh, incident management, partnerships with ind indigenous communities, improvements in marine traffic. And here's one of the key areas they focus on. It's forage fish. Now we know this past season, DFO, they had a full shutdown on the mackerel fishery. People on the water, the fish harvesters, they said there was more mackerel around than ever before but yet there was a shutdown. So there was also some concerns regarding herring, and certainly with capelin. I'm not a fish harvester. I'm not on the water. I don't see the catch rates. You're the people who do it, and you can fill us in with what you see. But we know for sure that forage fish will be the key to long-term sustainability for the larger fish, uh, fish stocks out there. But that's a concerning report coming from Oceana Canada. 17% of the 194 fish stocks assessed in the critical zone. Anywho, let's keep going. All right. So, again, I'm going to keep talking about it because I think it's one of the most important topics in the province at this moment in time is food insecurity and the prices at the grocery store. It's just hard to wrap your mind around it, isn't it? I do the grocery shopping. I'm forever shocked when I arrive at the till and see how much I'm paying for sold very little. So, Food First NL and the emergency line that is 211, they're temporarily stopping taking phone calls, overwhelmed by demand. So, there was a six-week wait time to get a call back. That's how busy they are. And even if we had more funding going to that organization to have more staff to be able to return calls, that's not going to do anything to deal with the root cause of the overwhelming demand. Just imagine, people who are just so community-minded and boots on the ground, the Josh Smees of the world, they can't even keep up with it. Remember, it's not that long ago, Memorial University had to shut their food bank down. We hear from people at St. Vincent de Paul and Bridges and Hope, they've never seen numbers like this coming through the door. So, again, here's some research numbers coming from the University of Toronto. 17.9% of the province's households were food insecure in 2021. When it comes to children, 26.4 children live in households that are unable to access nutritional food in this province. So, when we talk about, you know, whether it be using the old canopy growth uh, shop up on the White Hills to do some hydroponic growing, and there's lots of operations that are doing exactly that. And we're not 100% sure how much food is produced here, but... When the numbers are what the numbers are and what the prices are what they are in the grocery store, you know, we talk about a crisis that is healthcare, And that's right across the country. This business about how many people are turning to food banks, and we're not just talking about people who are living in poverty pre-pandemic. We're talking about middle-class folks who work full-time and they just can't make ends meet with paying their utilities, paying their rent, paying their mortgage, paying their insurance, and, yes, trying to be able to afford food. And, pharm and pharmaceuticals, their prescriptions. I mean, I don't know how we have not considered the food issue in this province an absolute crisis. It's easy to attach that label to the healthcare system. We all see what's going on there. We talk about it all the time. But we mobilize when there's a crisis. And governments try to do stuff. I mean, the, the provincial government has put forward a suite of incentives for a variety of different healthcare professionals to either come back or to be recruited into the system. Something's got to be done about food. It just does. 
And I know it takes individuals and I know it takes uh, municipal leaders and, yes, provincial policymakers to try to grapple with what I consider to be an absolute crisis. Not because I say so or what I see when I go to Sobeys or Coleman's is what I read regarding the numbers. So imagine having to shut down what is one of their key roles. And this is not a knock on Josh. I think Josh Schmee is a fantastic fellow and does incredible work. Six weeks worth of backlog? How can that possibly be the case? So we can see some additional funding, as I mentioned, going to organizations like this, but it doesn't speak to anything regarding the root cause for just what we have to do to consider these cost of living pressures. And yes, the province can't do much about inflation necessarily, even though some of you will argue that even just things like the $500 checks are just putting more money in the system when there's not enough product to satisfy what would be an increased demand when people have more money in their hand. But anyway... You want to take it on if you're in the food business. And yes, even focus on small farms. Remember, it was just a few years ago that the province made 64,000 additional hectares of land available for agricultural purposes. What's even the status of any of that? I know it takes time to clear land. I know it takes time for people to put together a business plan to put forward, to try to get the capital to get things going. But we have got to take the bull by the horns here regarding food. We just do. And what that looks like, if you have suggestions and want to talk about it, we can do it. And you know what? The price of food and stuff, you know, it has a direct relationship with the healthcare system. If people are not eating properly, whether it be nutritional food or otherwise, and maybe not, eat, not even eating enough to satisfy their daily need, regardless of if they're quote unquote junk food and or more healthy options, it will have an impact with the healthcare system. It will also have a potential impact with criminal justice. So this has a ripple effect across a variety of arenas. So anyway, you want to take it on, we can do it. Speaking of healthcare, happy World Antimicrobial Awareness Week. For a long time, we had a problem in the province, so say the doctors, about the overprescribing of antibiotics in particular. Those numbers have come back to earth a little bit. But if you hear from someone like uh, Dr. Peter Daly, he says that there's few new antibiotics being developed. So when we have an already a growing issue with the antibiotics not being as effective because the microbes have developed uh, a resistance to the antibiotic or the antimicrobials, so we've got to be aware of that and keep, our, keep their feet to the fire because, you know, isn't that just extraordinary, though, when you think about it? So patients may indeed present themselves at the ER or in a doctor's clinic and say they need an antibiotic. When, obviously, some doctors are writing prescriptions for antibiotics, knowing full well it's not the proper drug to take to a prescription pad. Overprescribing of drugs is not necessarily on me. It should be on whoever's got the white coat and the, the blue pen and writing up the script. You want to take it on? Let's go. On that front, we talk about whether it be doctors and RNs and social workers and pharmacists and maximizing scope of practice and all those types of things. One healthcare professional that gets left out of the conversation far too often are paramedics. So let's focus in on Whitburn. For five months, the emergency room at Whitburn has been closed. Five months. I think it was back in the middle of, Ju middle of June or July where they first saw the closure, and that was with the two family doctors who left. Okay, it was June 27. So the Dr. William H. Newhook Center services some 14 communities, all the way from Roach's Line to Chance Cove. What's happening here is not only people having to travel longer distances to get to a hospital, whether it be in Placentia, which is about 50 kilometers away, or in St. John's, 90-odd kilometers away, Carbonair, 60 kilometers away. What happens when you have an emergency? So the operation out there is Smith's Ambulance. So 
with these long distances of travel and the time it takes to offload a patient over to whoever at whichever of these hospitals, the triage nurse or some other professional working in the ER, we have red alerts and hours on end where the paramedics are unable to attend to calls in any of these 14 communities. They've got a serious po- problem with burnout. They've only got funding enough from the federal, uh, pardon me, the provincial government to keep three or their four ambulances on the road. Two are working 24-hour shifts. One is staffed Monday to Friday. So the paramedics out there are saying what paramedics have been saying in this province for quite a long time. And it would be nice to know, like we see the numbers coming from, say, the Registered Nurses Union, 600 vacancies. We see the numbers of how many doctors are working in the province, even though it doesn't have the context required to know whether or not they're seeing the full, ro- full roster of patients or they're focusing on research or what have you. So well, there's more doctors than ever before, but again, without the context about what they're doing and how they're practicing, it's not, hard, it's not easy to wrap your mind around it. But what's the optimal number of paramedics, and where are we? How many paramedics are leaving, and do we know why? We've seen the stories up in Labrador, you know, and they've got a massive problem up there, too, and I would suggest the paramedic issue is a province-wide concern. For the individual, it will be like, for instance, in Trapassi, where they lost their ambulance service. That's the impact on the individual, but we don't talk enough about the paramedics themselves. I mean, we see the numbers of red alerts. We know the issues of people calling 911 just to not get a response for hours. So the folks who are working in the paramedic business out in Whitburn, keep up the good work. We know that you're burnt, like many people are in the system. I I would think many people throughout the community are burnt for a variety of different reasons. But they say recruitment, virtually impossible in that region. Oh, my. And one more healthcare professional. Now, I spoke with Minister Osborne, the Minister of Health Community Services. I guess it was last week. And one of the issues that we broached was nurse practitioners. Because there was a directive given from the minister's office to the health authorities to recruit more nurse practitioners. From where? Don't know. How? Don't know. What we do sometimes here is, you know, there's some incentives for people to return to the province, healthcare workers, doctors and RNs in particular. For nurse practitioners, we only graduate about 12 per year. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 215 nurse practitioners in the province. And some people tell me we need double that. So while we can look around to other provinces or other countries for nurse practitioners, why don't we start at home? More seats, graduate more nurse practitioners. If you're from here, you're more likely to stay here long term. So that's one that uh, we can talk about. We had a call yesterday, but he was making a good point about the rapid test kits, the rapid antigen test kits that are being mailed out, and about cold weather. So the department did indeed respond to us. They say public health consulted with the manufacturer regarding this issue. The manufacturer has completed stability studies showing the test performance has not been affected by extreme shipping conditions such as freezing temperatures. It will, of course, be about how long they're exposed to these freezing cold temperatures, but here's what it says. Long-term storage is recommended to be between 2 and 30 degrees Celsius. Minor variations in temperature while shipping the product is allowed. However, they ask people to monitor the mailboxes and retrieve the test as quickly as possible. Furthermore, the test kit and test components must be brought to room temperature before using. That's some of the info that people were looking for yesterday. Good news, home heating fuel prices are down, both stove oils and furnace oil. The numbers are 6.41 cents per liter lower for furnace oil and 8.1 cents per liter lower for stove oils. There is a new federal program announced yesterday, some $250 million to help Canadians move from oil-fired power uh, heat in their home to electric uh, heat pumps. 
The key to this one is you don't have to apply after the fact. The money's going to be up front, up to as much as $5,000. So we can put that in there. But here's one where I don't know why, but some people were saying, why are, are you wasting your time talking about carbon tax and home heating fuels in this province? Because there is an exemption. And you're absolutely right. The worry was that that might not last forever. And it looks like it might not. The federal carbon tax play is coming to Newfoundland and Labrador next July. That's why the conversation was happening, because this was always going to be possible. So with the federal plan also comes a rebate. The government says that 90% of what you pay in carbon tax will be delivered back to you in a quarterly check, somewhere in the neighborhood of between $240 and $400 of family four. That's the government numbers that they're using. And they come January, April, July, and October. So they're adding Nova Scotia, PEI, and this province next July. That joins Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario under the federal backstop. Unsure why, but New Brunswick, Quebec, the territories, and BC will keep with their own current provincial structure. So the question now, the key question is, will there be a negotiated break on carbon tax on home heating fuel? It's fine to get a rebate check in the mail, but that's after the fact that you had to come up with the money to get the oil in the tank in the first place. So... I figured this was coming, and it looks like it is. Now it's an announcement come from Stephen Gibo's office just yesterday. Under the Climate Action Incentive Payments Plan, July the 1st, Newfoundland and Labrador joins the federal plan. Uh-oh. All right. What's this say? Oh, if you want to talk about the inquiry in Ottawa, we're in the final week. So it looks like uh, Marco Mendocino, he's got to answer for some contradictory statements he's made in the House of Commons regarding the fact that he says the police act uh, requested the Emergencies Act just to be found out at the inquiry. All of the police forces say they did not ask the minister. So today we'll see Mendocino and Dominic LeBlanc testify. And yesterday, which is also half confusing, is uh, David Vigneault from CESA's says that he did advise the prime minister to invoke the Emergencies Act. Not based on the strict interpretation of the law, but a more broader interpretation, which is pretty convenient stuff. You know full well that will be how the ministers speak to the uh, inquiry for the rest of this week, based on uh, David Vigneault's statement, the head of CSIS yesterday. But that's also a bit contradictory as well. So anyway, you want to take on the inquiry, let's go. We're on Twitter. Oh, before we get to that, so apparently someone has taken it upon themselves to pretend that they're members of the VOCM team. In particular, Greg Smith and Claudette Barnes. So they've got a fake account going. They're asking people to register their names by clicking a link, say you have an opportunity to win up to $20,000. They've edited some of our own provinci- uh, official promotional materials. So don't fall for it. It's not us. Imagine having the time and the inclination to want to be sitting at your keyboard getting out with that nonsense. I've had a few parody accounts trying to pretend they were me on Twitter in particular, but... Be careful with that kind of stuff, and the scams are everywhere you look. All right, we are on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. I'm not giving Elon eight bucks for a blue tick. Uh, email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. You know the deal. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Cheryl. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind, Cheryl? Uh, I'm calling... Um I live in the Bonavista region, and my mom, who is 64 years old, uh, we went in to see a surgeon in to the health science in July of 2021. Uh, she, her hip is like, is, it was bone on bone 
for the x-ray that she had done in 2021. They agreed she needed a total hip replacement. She signed consent that day for surgery. We were told maybe an eight-month wait. We're still waiting. She is she's in agony day after day with pain. Um, she her mental health has deteriorated drastically. Uh, for the first time in her life, she now takes antidepressants because she's dealing with this pain. Um, just this weekend, I spoke to her, and she expressed thoughts of wanting to jump in the water to end this agony that she's in. Oh, my. And I, I don't know what to do. Like, um, I was weeks and weeks reaching out to Dr. Stone's office. Uh, finally, his secretary called me back. Lovely lady, very understanding. I had a great conversation with her. She got us back in to see Dr. Stone, and he agreed. Mom should have had this surgery back in July of 2021 when he did see her, but there's no bids. He he does not like. He doesn't even have a. He he told me that his kids actually and his wife actually tease him when he goes home early, on a, in the middle of the week, saying like, "Don't you have a job?" He doesn't have, like, he, he's got the OR that he can take her to, but when the surgery is done, there's no bid to put her in for a night or two till she's ready to come home. Yeah, I mean, triaging people for surgery has long been a concern and it seems to be much worse now. Do we have yeah. any idea about when she's going to be seen? Well, no. He, like, he actually taught, like, he looked at us that day when we were in there about four weeks ago. And he said, sad for a surgeon to have to say, but he said, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And he said, I think your daughter is your grease. And he told me to go home and make noise. Told me to call my MHA, which I've done. Um, after about three or four days, um, I left a message, took about four days for his secretary to call me back. That would be Craig Party's office. I had a lovely conversation with his secretary. She was very understanding as well. Uh, she told me she was going to talk to Craig and get back to me. That's been about three weeks ago. I haven't heard back. I've since left two messages for her and nothing. So I've taken my mom's story to uh, social media, and now I'm reaching out through this avenue because I don't know what else to do for her. You know, I'm I'm at a loss with some of these things. Every now and then when there's an issue brought forward on the program, maybe I've dealt with it in the past, can help point people in the right direction to maybe speed up the process. When it comes to healthcare, we all find ourselves at a roadblock. I wouldn't yeah. even know where to send you or point you to try to get some expedited uh, process so your mom can be seen, get the procedure, get back on the road to recovery. Yeah. But I'm up against it. So I think yeah. the doctor's probably right in saying making some noise because every now and then that bit of noise does get people seen quicker than they might yeah. have if they were just home and quietly he, waiting. He openly admitted it to me like that, you know, and it was sad for a surgeon to have to tell his patients that. And, and you know, he expressed how mom is fortunate because she has somebody to advocate for her. But there are a lot of patients that don't have that. They just go home and sit and wait and wait 
you know. I do know. Uh, so how are you handling, as a loved one, you know, some of her concerns, and I almost don't want to say it again, but to ha- jump in the water and end it all. Well, how you how know, are you approaching that? She doesn't have, she, uh, up until about six months ago, she didn't have family doctor. Thankfully, my uncle reached out to his family doctor who agreed to take her on as a patient. And they, I don't think the rest of the family at that time realized the state that she was in with her, her mental health. So I had sat her down before I went to this appointment with her and said, Mom, like, I know you're going because of the pain that you're in, but we need to get you on something for your the anxiety and your mental health condition right now because I was worried that had she gotten a call for surgery in the state that she was in, in her mental health, that they would refuse to do the surgery because of her, you know, her mental health was in such a state. So I, I did finally convince her that she needed the medication. She is finding it somewhat helpful. Well, it is really hard because I have to tell you, like, my mom is everything, but I go days and days. I, I, I don't want to call her because it's... It hurts me when she breaks down crying on the phone. I hate to go see her because it tears me apart seeing the pain that she's in. Would your mother be open to speaking with someone other than family members about this? You know, because I I do have some numbers of people that can maybe help on that front, on the mental side anyway. You know, I can't do anything about a bed and a surgery, but there are resources out there. Where oh, yeah, do you I think know. your mom would take the opportunity to make these types of calls when she's feeling as bad as she feels some days? No, no, I don't think she would. No. Oh, I've had, um, she has gone through um, a loss of her partner about 11 years ago with cancer. Mm-hmm. And I did convince her at that time to seek mental health counseling. And she went like once or twice. She's a very reserved kind of person, which is why I'm the one advocating for her, and she's not advocating for herself. She's not. She wouldn't. I've tried to get her like to open up to doctors in the hospital when I took her there once on call. She won't talk to anybody about. Those kinds of things. I don't want to get too deep into your own personal business. That's not my intention here. Uh, nope. But sometimes you can also do it anonymously. Like there's some there's some uh, toll-free numbers that I have that you don't have to tell them who you are. You don't have to get too deep into why you feel the way you do with your mental stress or anguish. And, you know, if some of the embarrassment that some people might feel by putting themselves out there, presenting in front of a clinician, because then it becomes a different conversation. But sometimes if, you know, just, I'm not trying to give you advice or anything, but if you just tell her, you know what, we can get a little bit of help. You can do it from home. You can do it on the phone. You can do it at any time throughout the entire 24 hours of the day. You don't have to give them your name. All you have to do is get a voice on the other end that is trained and understands and can help. And maybe when you feel the worst throughout the day, you can just get that voice on the other end of the line that might be able to help you out. And, you know, be able to, you know, get some stuff off your chest and reduce the burden on your shoulders. It might be helpful because if you don't do it with your name, it might be that step easier. Easier. You can do it from your own couch, which, you know, I'll just offer that to you and I'll give you a number and maybe 
She might just give it a try one day and find that, you know, it's making it feel a little bit easier as I wait and try to manage the pain. So would you like to take the number anyway? Uh, no, I have all that. Like I've okay. had that information and I've made that her aware that that stuff is, you know, that those services are out there for her. But she, And I think I'm her go-to person <laughs> and I have people that, I unload on when the burden gets to be too much for me. So, like, we're handling it, I think, the best way that we can handle it for what mom is willing to uh, open up to. Okay. But I just, I would just, you know, I don't know if anybody else out there in your listening audience would have some advice on, you know, where I can go from here. We, we need her on that operating table is what we need. I mean, uh, back in 2021, in July, when Dr. Stone looked at that x-ray, it was about four months old at that point. It was no cartilage left there. There are bone fragments floating around inside. The, uh, the most recent x-ray she had done shows inflammation now right across like the whole pelvis area. And the good hip is deteriorating really quickly because, of course, the bad hip, she just can't, you know, she can't use it. She's favoring the good one, and now that one's starting to de- to deteriorate. Yes, you know, it happens all the time, doesn't it? You know, you got a sore yeah. knee, so you have a limp, and all of a sudden your hip is gone, and oh, it's just, it's never-ending. Uh, yeah, you know, next I, steps. I said to Dr. Stone, like I said, uh, you know, we're here, and he said, I could take her down to the OR now, but I don't have a bid to put her in after. I said, mm-hmm. I'll go to Walmart. I'll buy a cart. Uh, a cot will set it up in the hallway and I'll look out to her for two days. And he said, you know what? I have no doubt that you would do that. And I would willingly do that for you if I thought we could get away with it. You know, next place to document your concern, uh, your complaint, they call it a client relations office at Eastern Health. Client is such a terrible word when we're talking about human beings looking for help in the healthcare system. But they have an actual client relations office that you can take a complaint. So, you know, once you get it formalized and documented and dated, you know, I don't know if that'll change much, but it'll certainly be the next step I would take if I was you. And if I had any other advice or if anyone comes to me with any, we have your number. If I get anything that I think would be helpful, Cheryl, I'll call you back. Perfect. Thank you. I wish you and your family well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Cheryl. Yeah, I mean, you know, isn't that quite something? And I think it's kind of indicative of the system sometimes is we're calling people clients. I'm not a customer, I'm not a client, I'm a person or a patient. Let's take a break, don't go away. Save the date, VOCM's dial carol Sunday, November 27th, 1 to 6 p.m. on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Mr. Jewer. you're on the air. Yes, Patty, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. How about you? Fine. I heard a conversation there yesterday about this woman being buried for life. From this, uh, the Seniors Club, the cards? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, my situation is I'm buried from a corner store for life. For what? Well, I, I, I can't really justify it, really, because I don't think there's anything. Uh, that I didn't break no law or nothing. I just carried back a product. I tried to be turned out with damage at their store. Okay. So it's it, it, probably not quite as simple as you simply walked in the door and said, I'd like to return this. They said, get out your band. What happened? Okay, then I'll I, I read this little thing I got written down there. I'm just, justified bird for life at the corner store because I said more or less bull s. 
uh, a senior citizen. I buy a product at the corner store. I open it up, and I could tell it was damaged before I buy it. No problem, right? Carry it back and get a refund or replace. That is when things started to go wrong. And I have proof and still have the proof. The cashier was new, not trained, right? No overseer and on her own. I am not blaming her. It was not her fault. All I wanted was for someone to help me to replace the product I bought at the store, and I did not get that. I did not break no laws, and things get worse again. The next day, the owner came up. He is not a cashier or the manager. It looked like he came to challenge me or to fight, not to help me. In the heat of the moment, he buried me, and he was living as he was leaving and turned and said, no, not just bared, but bared for life. The manager and the cashier had no say. I, I spend a twelve to uh, ten to $12,000 a year at the store. Okay. All right. So, I mean, so it gets into where you lose your cool and said BS or whatever else you might have said. So it was as simple as that. And that one interaction means you're gone forever. Yeah. Oh, my. And I never got nowhere with the product that I was returning. So is there such a thing as, like, no return policy or they blamed you for breaking it? Or what was the issue with the return? Well, I think they made up their mind exactly like that. They made up their mind right away. But I got uh, a friend there when I bought that product. And uh, all that stuff was the camera, I guess. I don't know how long they keep it or whatever. If they look back at, uh, at when I bought the product, uh, am I allowed to say what the product was? Sure. It, it, was, a, it, it was a Labatt Blue product, but light. Okay, and what was broken? There was a broken bottle in there? or Yeah, there was a broken bottle in there. I still got the case. You could see something like a machinery uh, broken because of the forks uh, uh, and, 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 that, and, the, and the case was dry. So I think it was uh, broken at the factory. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I know people sometimes over the years have tried to scam the brewery with bringing back something with a chip on the lip of the bottle and those uh, kinds of things. No, I'm not that character. Okay, you, Mr. Uh, Jewer, is there another yeah. place you can buy the beer close by so that, that uh, 10 or 12,000 bucks could just be spent elsewhere? I, I, I got no uh, transportation, eh? Uh, this is in a walking distance. I got to go to another town. Okay. I'm, I'm 70 years old. I don't mind having to walk, but in the winter now. Can someone give you a run? Oh, yeah, but uh, that's not the thing. That's not taking care of what, what happened. I'm falsely accused. Uh, yeah, that, I, I don't know what to say to that because I, I wasn't there, so I really don't know what went on. But uh, mm -hmm. it's too bad when anyone gets banned. Even, even if you lose your temper for a minute, you know, these stories of people getting banned as quick as that first. And again, I wasn't there, so I don't really know what went on. But I'm sorry uh, that it happened to you. I'll let you have the last word. Go ahead, Mr. Jewer. Uh, yes, well, he came up on my property after, and you should have, you should have uh, everybody said to me. Uh, I, I never said nothing like that down the store, things that he said to me. Okay. You know, on my property, I don't know if the owner of the store is allowed to come up and, and knock on me the door and, and give me the, you know, what was going on. That's all I wanted was somebody to listen to me. What happened? Well, 
keep us in the loop if you're able to wiggle back into your uh, the shop close by in walking distance. Uh, appreciate the call this morning. Take good care of yourself. Okay, Joe. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, let's see here. David, I suppose I should take a break before we get this one because God knows I'll miss the break by a wide margin there. A uh, quick check on the Twitter feed. We're VOCM Open Line. The rebate, and it's not even a rebate, it's the upfront money if people decide they'd like to make the transition from oil to uh, uh, heat pumps. And, of course, there's still going to be some confusion there because if you're going to remove the oil source in full, it's not going to be as fundamental as a couple of heat pumps and you can heat, say, your 1,200-square-foot bungalow. You know, but there is monies in that pocket, in that pot for upgrading wiring and you you're absolutely going to need something else like an electric baseboard heater or something but the cutoff for lower median households to even avail of this money if you're a single person the threshold is twenty six thousand five hundred and seventy dollars so that's not very much is it let's go ahead and take a break when we come back we're talking about that pump grant don't go away welcome back to the show let's quickly go to one bradley you're on the air yes Patty. yes Good sir morning. Not a first-time caller, but I'm a long-time listener. Fantastic. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, I just heard Mr. Jewer on there. I just wanted to give him some uh, advice there on that beer. Okay. Yeah, this happens to me a fair bit, too, uh, with the with the, the big-name uh, beer, you know, Labatt and Molson and stuff. But uh, the convenience stores, there's our policy. They don't deal with anything like that. He's going to have to call that number that he got on his packaging or his bottle and deal with Labatt or Molson himself. I would imagine, you know, because that's a straight-up loss for the the retailer, so you're probably right. Definitely, yeah. And uh, they'll, they'll, like I say, I'm after doing it before. They'll probably send them out a few coupons for a few swallies, but you'll have to have that uh, bottle available because they'll probably ask them to send it back. Yeah, probably so. Uh, I do know that the breweries for a long time were on the receiving end of the scam where, you know, the boys would have the beer bottle up against the concrete step, giving it some light taps, see if they can get a little chip in it so they can bring it down and say they bought it that way. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, that's probably good advice for Mr. Jewer. If you're still listening, deal directly with the brewery. Yeah, definitely. I'll tell the boys, too. Let cool heads prevail. Maybe go back and have a chat. You know, everyone has a bad day. Get on with it. That they do, Bradley. Thanks for the call. Good advice. Yeah, thanks, Patty. All the best, buddy. Cheers. You, you too, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, you're going to have to deal with the brewery. He's probably right on the money. Let's go to line number three. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. A couple of quick things. Um, the, the mailing out that the province seems to be doing um, for the cost of living checks as well as the test kits. I just wonder if there's another case of spending other people's money. Like I just even a stamp is a dollar seven, and then you got all the processing that goes into mailing out those those checks. I mean, when Pam Parsons is asked a question about why the province can't find come up with five hundred thousand dollars to help keep the Blue Door program going at Thrive and and she says, well, we don't have any money. And then, you know, if there's 218,000 homes in Newfoundland and Labrador, they're probably wasting close to that. Just mail out those checks. But then when you get into the test kits, which are going to do two separate mailings, you know, if you average, if you say it's 10 bucks to do that, because Canada Post is not moving that stuff around for free. Uh, you know, you're looking at, um, in that case, sorry, sorry there's 218,000 homes. So it's backing it up for the for the checks. They're, they're sending up 392 uh thousand of the checks but there's 218,000 homes in Newfoundland and Labrador so you're looking at probably over two million dollars to mail out or more to mail out the test kits one time each time so it's I just, I just can't square the circle as you like to say as as to why we couldn't pick them up in liquor stores or 
pharmacies, like, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly. You could hire a courier, a courier uh, company, and deliver them to whatever retail outlet we're talking about, whether it be all the coffee shops or at Piper's or Canadian Tire or uh, Walmart or the library, wherever, and do it at a fraction of the cost, and people would be able to just go get them. Like, that's how it happened elsewhere. It just feels like we're reinventing the wheel here. You know, people will also say, why even the, take it on to send them out? Well, the fact is the federal government already bought them, so we might as well use them as opposed to throw them in the garbage. But just to... You know, to turn to what is the most complicated, time-consuming, expensive option just doesn't make any sense to me. I know there might be some issues with getting direct deposits set up for these $500 checks, but the rapid test kits, I should be able to just go down to wherever, Marie's Mini Mart, where I can see the sign right across the street from me, and they would have them behind the counter, and they'd be free. And we'd just pick them up, go home, and be on our merry way, and it would be at a fraction of the cost. So I'm not really sure on this one. No, me neither. And again, it's millions. We're not talking about whether it's... Ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars, and it's and it's almost like, it's almost like the people who make the decisions. It's too much trouble for the people who work for us to have to do that work. Like, yeah, maybe some people don't, you know, don't have electronic deposit for those checks, so you know that'd be a bit of work. But maybe we need to get them set up. Maybe we could spend the money getting that set up. Have our people working for us. I mean, there's a common theme. Everybody I talk to say nobody in government is returning emails. Nobody's returning phone calls. And I'm talking about people who have influence. I mean, I'm not talking to people who are just trying to get, I don't know, some minor thing done. It just seems like a theme. And I don't know if it's if it's just infection that's gone through the whole public service. And maybe it's everywhere. But anyway, just throw that out there. Second quick thing, I just want to double down on what I we talked about last week about the federal government and their employees and the public sector unions who are demanding 10 to 14 percent raises, annual raises, while the government, the Bank Canada is trying to bring inflation down by um, – by increasing interest rates and taking away everybody's disposal income. If you want to cool off the economy, the number one thing to do is send a message to the employees of the federal government and as well to our consultants and contractors that work for the federal government that that the, that you know they're going to be sharing in the pain and I think that would cool the economy off and then we could we could end this whole inflation thing fairly quickly and it would also be great leadership for the federal government for the provinces and the municipalities who are negotiating with their employees you know if the feds go out and sign a 10 or 14% raises with CRA or with PSAC, then, you know, what are all the public sector unions in Newfoundland and Labrador or at, or at the city of St. John's, what are they all going to say? Well, they're all going to want the same thing. So again, I want to look directly at Christian Fried, Minister Friedland and our local ministers, uh, Minister Hutchings and Minister Reagan, and calling them to when they're sitting around the cabinet table, say, guys, the gravy train for, our, for the federal government people who are, who've been taking the taxpayers' money, we're going to put the brakes on that and let's see what that does. To inflation in the country, and then, then you know, and then cool off, trying to you know all the people who are really being suffering, being punished by higher interest rates and inflation. I just think it's I think it's a it's a novel solution, and I want to call on them to consider it and roll it out. Okay. All right. Over we go. Um, you know, it's it, it's it's timely in that we now have a heads up that uh, Minister Gibo is going to basically drag Newfoundland and Labrador into the carbon. Uh, backstop program in July. So we now have seven months notice. And that's going to immediately mean that uh, furnace oil, maybe maritime uh, uh, diesel, maybe aviation fuel, because all this stuff's up in the air. But definitely for sure, home heating oil is going to go up in costs. So then, you know, the day before that announcement's coming out, they've, they've uh, added another program, the Oil to Heat Pump Affordability Grant. Now, you've always said 
that you know it's upfront money and then you go and you get your money back after the fact so therefore it's you know it's hard on people who don't have the cash flow you also pointed rightly out that your medium household income has to be very low it, you know one person $26,000 in order to, to actually be able to qualify for this new grant two people 37,000 three people 46,000 four people 53,000 so a lot of, a lot of people you know this is this is going after the low income to lower middle income um, Newfoundland and Labrador and resident. But a lot of times people don't realize is that there are other programs out there that the feds have and the province have. And, and so I did a bit of research into it and I just want to pass it along. Um, when you go through the process and you do need to hire, this is one barrier is you do need to hire a, an, a, an energy auditor to come in and audit your home. You have to get two audits. But the federal government has an, on, an online webpage and you go in and apply and you've got to go get this audit done. But they actually also have a Canada Greeners Green Homes loan, home loan that is 10 years, interest-free. It's unsecured. So once you get your audits done, and you apply the audits, and you but but you can't do any work at all. Like you can't you can't do anything, and this does take time. But when you do that, you know. So this oil to heat pump affordability, if, if you're making too much money for that, which a lot of people may be, you go through the process of of applying, getting your audits done, and when you get when you get that all done. Then you can there's a there's a five thousand five thousand dollar grant you can get from the that you'll get after the fact. But you can use that loan to pay for. So they'll get they'll afford you the loan and they'll help you pay for it. So hopefully a combination of all that and then the province also has grants. I was speaking to a gentleman who's totally retrofitting an old home and it's not gonna cost him any real money. Um and he's doing a major retrofit. But you know, you gotta get educated and he really you really need to work with a contractor who is also going to have your back and help you navigate through the process. And it will take time. But now we've, you know, we know next winter, if we think home heating oil, you know, is expensive. It's a very good. Of course, you don't know what the price of fuel is going to be next year. But, but uh, nor do we know if there's going to be any success uh, with the provinces want to negotiate an exemption on home heating fuels again, like we did in our most recent or the current bilateral agreement. But if the federal plan is going to be implemented in full, then it'll be carbon tax across the board. And that's going to be an absolute concern in this province because without the carbon tax, it's already a concern here, the price for heating your home, regardless of how you heat your home. So we'll see what becomes of it. But, yeah, I figured this was coming. And, you know, I can't uh, believe how many people would send me emails in particular saying, why are you wasting your time talking about carbon tax and home heating fuel? Because I th thought this was coming, and here it is. You know, I think you're going to see um, a division amongst some of the, the uh, liberal MPs. I mean, I, I think it's going to be very challenging for the federal liberals to be able to pull this off in some of these provinces, the Atlantic provinces, because we are very reliant on on uh, home heating oil. It's going to, you know, and it's, and it's difficult and it's a challenge. You and I have been talking about this for a couple of years, but just like the boiling frog analogy, you know, the price of energy is going up across the board, and you know, just call on people, reach out to a contractor, get in the queue, get your applications in. You know, it, 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 we need to figure out a way to do less. I know you had a talk with Nick last week, and he was talking about pickup trucks, and and you know, and, and he's kind of down on on EVs. I understand. I understand why. I mean, obviously, for those who don't have one or who want to have everything we have now, but there's just this situation where we need to realize we've got to make our homes way more energy efficient. I mean, the province has signed on for net zero by 2050, but they've got aggressive goals like every year, and and. We need to all realize that the price of energy is just going to keep going up, and 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 most likely, our standard of living is going to drop regardless. But one way to insulate standard standard of living a little bit is to um, is to reduce your spending. So smaller vehicles, less vehicles, 
smaller homes or much better insulated and more efficiently heated homes. So lots of stuff to consider, Patty. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, everyone. Take Appreciate care. it. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's see here. Today, David tells me, good day to get on the show. And certainly, like I try to say all the time, it doesn't matter if I bring it up or if you heard someone talk about it on the show. If it's a topic you don't think gets enough attention, we absolutely are happy to take that on here on the program. Or you want to build on what someone else said or pick up on something I said. That's what it's all about. And sometimes people think that, well, my concern might not be big enough or important enough for the listening audience. Don't don't think that. Because if it's important enough to you, it's important enough to me. So let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, you're in the queue. I can feel it. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Well, there's long been the potential for violence uh, in the downtown core, notably on George Street. Not to pick on the bar keeps on George Street, but we do know that it has happened over the years. People who frequent the area are saying that there's been a surge, an uptick in the number of incidents on George Street and at the surrounding area. Join us on line number one is one of the musicians who does indeed gig in George and downtown. That's Rowan Sherlock. He's on one. Good morning, Rowan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Uh, great today. Thanks. Uh, how about you? Yeah, pretty good. Thank you. You're pretty good, but all the same, I've heard yourself and Craig uh, in the media talking about what you're seeing on George Street. Go ahead and paint us a picture. Um, yeah, so it's myself and Craig are pretty regular downtown musicians on George Street. Um, myself, I geek there anywhere from two to seven nights a week. It's one of my main sources of income. So I'm I'm on George Street pretty regular, and I'm one of the guys who does a lot of the late bar shifts with uh, with the bands. You know, the ten thirty to one thirty or eleven thirty to two thirty kind of slots at night. Um, the past few months, there's been this kind of a strange feeling of unease on George Street and a very uncomfortable feeling when you're walking down George Street, either to or from your uh, the events. Um, and as well as just that uneasy feeling, there have been kind of an upsurge of incidents with musicians having their instruments stolen um, from their person, from people on George Street, or getting into physical altercations with people on George Street or having money stolen from them. And it's not just an isolated incident. And this isn't a reflection either on the actual venues on George Street, because it's not happening in the venues. It's happening actually on the street itself. Um, and it's it's quite nerve-wracking at times. Like, I have friends and family members. My, my wife even, she won't come to see a lot of my, my late gigs anymore unless she's with somebody else, because she's too nervous to walk on George Street on her own, which is... Uh, which isn't very isn't very nice for us as musicians, um, and it's kind of it's getting to a bit of a breaking point now where it, it's quite worrying for a lot of us. Um, myself and our band Rugged Shores, we have an agreement ourselves that whenever we're gigging downtown, we make sure to park near each other and we'll walk to the venues together as a group and back, um, just because it's it's not a comfortable position when you're walking up or down George Street and you've got both arms full with with your instruments and maybe you've got a backpack on your back as well and you're you're quite vulnerable when you're walking up and down and you've got you know potentially thousands of dollars worth of equipment in your hands and you're kind of you're an easy target as such 
And the uneasy feeling comes from the fact that even friends of yours who have been attacked, there's one fellow in particular who I know who it is, we won't put his name out there, took yeah. a pretty significant beating. I mean, teeth he knocked did. out and he's still recovering. And there was, this was a real savage attack on this one person. And we know there's been musicians had their uh, instruments stolen on the street. Yeah. So yep. this is built in things that are happening, not just an uneasy feeling because there's people lurking in the shadows. So this is very real. You know, absolutely. there's always yep. something to be said for police presence. But And I think I saw a quote from either you or Craig saying, you're not pointing fingers of blame around because the police no. force is strapped. You know, a yep. wa- someone walking the beat or a pair of police officers walking the beat would be helpful. But whether or not yep. they have the resources to actually make that happen, I think is a fair question. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the thing. And I've, I have been talking with some council members and they've explained to me that the RNC presence on George Street is a federal decision to be made. It's not It's not a local decision that can be made and it's not something that the George Street Association or anybody like that can like get involved and organise. Now, I'm sure maybe the George Street Association can put a word in the ear of the RNC and explain to them and even even maybe have them speak to some of the musicians to explain to them, you know, this is what's going on. This is at real time. And it's pretty amazing. Since I spoke to CBC um, at the weekend about this with, with Mr. Craig Follett, and I've had a bunch of musicians reach out to me um, who have direct messaged me through different venues of social media and told me their own stories of things that have happened pretty recently and stuff that I didn't know about. And it's just, I thought it was happening pretty regularly, but I didn't, I didn't imagine how regular it has been as of recent. And exactly what you said, I'm not pointing the blame and I'm not here to point blame at anybody, but I am here to kind of create an awareness, especially for my fellow musicians downtown um, and see if there is something that can be done because, you know, it is for a lot of us, it's one of our main um, avenues of revenue. It's, it's where we make a living. Um, and it's not a, it's not a nice place to be if you have to go to work and be watching over your shoulder the whole time. What do you think the issue surrounding the late night gig really is? Because in a lot of, say down in the crowd at Black Sheep, but the early gigs, I think they're having some success with them. So what do you make of maybe for me? And as I get older, this comes becomes part of my thought process. Yeah, I think the bars are just open too late, number one. And if the le- latest gig got off stage at midnight versus two o'clock, we might see a curb in some of this violence because some of the most dangerous characters come out to play a little bit later than the normal bar patron. Yeah, it's true. It's And it is something that a lot of the musicians do speak about as well, that the late, late gigs, the 11.30 to 2.30, sometimes even 3 a.m. gigs are, you know, it, it is, it, it sometimes it does feel excessively late, Um Especially now, maybe that's just speaking from my own point of view. I mean, because I, I, I live out in CBS, so it's a bit of a jaunt for me in and out of town. Um, but it is late, and I mean, if somebody's coming into a bar after twelve thirty, one o'clock, not you know, nine times out of ten, they're not overly interested if there's live music there, or if there's not, or if there was just you know, music just playing on the speakers. Um, and you're kind of right. I mean, the earlier gigs do have a little bit more success. And, you know, you do feel a little bit safer that time of night, I suppose, as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, when you're when you're kind of toddling down George Street with all your gear at two o'clock in the morning, it, it is it is a scary place to be. And I, you know, I'm almost hesitant to take pot shots at the region because you and I, have, we both have friends that are in the business down there and musicians oh, who make their yeah. livelihood down there. So when yeah. you talk about approaching the association or anybody else or the city about making things different and better and safer in that area, what are yeah. some of the ideas you and your fellow musicians come up with? Is there anything in particular that you would propose? Um, 
Well, the one, the main thing for us just with, in relation to our safety is an increase of police presence would for sure make a huge difference to us, um, whether it is a foot patrol or, or whatever. Um, but it, it, is hard, it is hard to comment on that because, as you said yourself, they, they are very much stretched. Um, in relation to gig times and those kind of things, that's a decision that really needs to be made by the venues themselves. And it's for us, it's not really for us to say. You know, if the venue wants us to play at whatever time, you know, we're going to get paid, so we're going to do it. Um, but it would be nice to eventually see a shift into a slightly earlier time category with all that kind of stuff. Because, you know, going to one thirty or 2.30 in the morning is, uh, is a bit much at, at times, you know. Absolutely. And I don't pretend to know what the answers are. And I've yeah. seen it myself. Uh, I don't get to go down as often as I used to. I used to be a real patron of the shows. I used to love getting out there. And it's not this potential to be jumped or mugged or shoved or intimidated as keeping me away, but I know it keeps a lot of people away. And that's yeah. unfortunate for everybody, for you guys with your bit of take at the door and, of course, yeah. for the businesses themselves. So. You know, I don't know. Without police, I don't even know what we can come up with because the CCTV cameras, that was part of the reason or the rationale for installing them is that, you know, about safety. But that's only after the fact because people are willing to commit those types of crimes, whether it's fueled by addiction or what have you. We don't know. And it's hard to generalize that every attack is done by someone who's high or under the influence. But, you know. It's one thing to have their face on tape, but that didn't spare the person the beating. So I really don't well, know where we go. Yeah, that, that's it. I mean, when it comes to the policing of these kind of things, it's really just a reactionary thing that can be done. You know, the incident will happen and then it'll be dealt with afterwards, which is probably why it happens more often than not nowadays. I mean, if something happens, you know, the, uh, the provokers or whoever they are, they have the opportunity just to leave the scene and, and flee. Um but when it's when it's being actively supervised or, or policed, I'm sure that those incidents would go down significantly. Um, what can be done about that? I don't know. But hopefully, this these kind of conversations will be the catalyst to start something, you know, and and to create a safer work environment for myself and and my fellow musicians, and not only just the musicians, but also the staff and the bar staff and the venue staff for George Street. Staff and patrons, everyone is involved in this conversation. Number one, there shouldn't be a dark corner on George. The place should be lit up like a Christmas tree, like it should almost be blinding light outside because it's really quite dim and some of those alleys from bars that are now shuttered are a fine spot to lay in waiting. Yeah, Yeah, it's true, yeah. Uh, Good to have you on, Rowan. Hopefully these conversations will help and something needs to be done because we can't have... Look, let me just think about it. We use George Street in promotional material. For tourism, uh, yeah, all the it, time. I mean, it's, it, it's a hub of tourism during the summer. It's just such a lively and kicking spot. And as I said earlier, it's where a lot of us do make our living. Um, and it just needs to be cleaned up, um, literally, and also in relation to the aspect of crime as well. Good to have you on, Rowan. Wish you well. Thanks, Paddy. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. That's Rowan Sherlock, Rugged Shores. Yeah. And again, I hate to put any. And I'm not putting any fingers of blame. We're just talking about the reality and what could and should be done about it. Because if George Street, you know, the reputation for a fun place and get to see the live music is absolutely real and it's justified. And I'm sure there's nobody that wants it to be safer more than the bar keeps because their livelihood also depends on people's want or willingness to go down and have a look. Go down and catch a show. Go down and have a bite to eat. Go down and have a pint. So, anyway, I appreciate Rowan making time for the program. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, the queue is up to you. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I wanted to call in this morning. I just saw the news coming out of Ottawa that the feds are going to impose uh, the carbon tax on the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. And it would appear from the announcement that the provinces, the liberal governments made in Newfoundland solution has been uh, taken off the table. And it's something that uh, they had promoted uh, when they had introduced carbon tax, the idea that this solution that they had uh, arrived at with the federal government would mean that people in Newfoundland and Labrador would not have to pay a carbon tax on home heating fuel and other and other uh, industries like the fisher people wouldn't have to pay carbon tax on fuel. Now, with this announcement, it appears that's all out the window and thrown out. I suppose it does because this was the worry that the federal backstop and the uh, the negotiated exemption on home heating fuels was going away. I thought it was going away, and it looks like it is absolutely going away. I don't know the status of any negotiations on that front, but if you look at the other four provinces that have the federal program in place, the carbon tax is applied to those fuels. So I guess that's where we're headed. Yeah, and that you know that has a, an impact on our fishing industry as well because they were exempt before. So now does that mean that carbon tax is now going to uh, be put on the fuel that they would use? The other thing they talk about, of course, is the rebate checks, and the federal government talk about rebate checks between 240 and 400 each quarter. But how will those be distributed? How does one, uh, what type of uh, income does one have? What is it based on? Will rebates take into account how much, for example, home heating fuel a person must use or if a person only uses gasoline in their car, do they receive the same rebate as a person who drives a car and also uses home heating fuel? So we don't know what those rebates are based on or whether it's simply going to be an across-the-board type of uh, uh, rebate that's given out or whether it's uh, income-tested or based on usage or what. So there's lots of questions that people are going to have today coming out of this potential announcement that the feds have made that are going to impact the people in Newfoundland and Labrador. So, you know, the House is not in session, unfortunately, for a lot of these questions to be asked. So maybe it's time for the Minister of Finance to come on your show and explain to the people in Newfoundland and Labrador exactly how they're going to be impacted by this situation. I don't necessarily know how the rebate works because we haven't lived it here. So I don't know if anybody really gets it at this moment in time. If you look at the four problems that have it, the way they report it anyway is that, you know, on an average four-person household, it's around $745 re- worth of rebates in Ontario. It's a bit more in Manitoba. It's over 1000 in Saskatchewan, I remember. It's over 1000 in Alberta. And... For folks that are living in more rural parts of those provinces, there's an additional 10%. But how's that that's going to be uh, applied here? I really don't know, Tony, but it's a pretty important question. Absolutely. And, and again, you know, those industries, like I said, about the fishing industry and others, that it would now appear from this announcement that they will be subject to carbon tax. And as I said, the Liberal government had touted their made-in-Newfoundland solution that would keep all of these products exempt from carbon tax. And now we're about to get hit with a significant amount of increase for people of the province. So, again, you know, government needs to get on and explain to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador the impact that this going is going to have on their lives and what they're going to do about it. 
Uh, this is an honest question because I don't know the answer specifically. Is about some industry exemptions on carbon tax and uh, other subsidies, that, for instance, that flow to the farming industry is one that I'm pretty sure there's some exemptions associated with the type of fuels they use, like the old purple fuel. If you have a commercial operation and use that dyed fuel, I think that has been exempt from the carbon tax in other provinces, hasn't it? Well, again, that's a question that needs to be answered and a question that the Minister of Finance needs to come on and address because people will have concerns about what does this mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've got to have a clear explainer. We've got seven months to prepare for, but that doesn't mean that we don't need the info today because there's going to have to be some considerations and adjustments and investments made for people to want to try to dodge as much carbon tax as they can. And I'm not even 100% sure that the current federal structure works great. You know, unfortunately, the carbon tax and climate change conversation has been all about politics and not about policy in the recent past, which is not helping anybody, I would suggest. You know, and even the party that you represent, you know, one of the biggest names still in the federal conservative party is Stephen Harper. He was a carbon tax guy. So now we're just, you know, squabbling about the politics of it as opposed to what the right policy should be, which I think is really unfortunate. And that that is the ultimate goal here. The ultimate goal has to be how do we help the people in Newfoundland and Labrador? in terms of being able to afford to continue to heat their homes and to carry on with their lives. We know we're in challenging times. You mentioned earlier on the show about the cost of living, and this is part of that, and the cost, the high cost of food and the other things that are impacting people's lives right now. So it's, you know, what we've done in the past simply has not, you can't simply rely on that. You have to be and look at this and say, what initiatives can we look at? How do we make changes to it? But this announcement today is one where people need some answers from their government. Yeah, and we'll try to get them on their behalf. Uh, of course they will. Uh, Tony, before we let you go, I don't think you had the opportunity to go to the most recent meeting in Stephenville regarding World Energy GH2. But what are you hearing on the ground there? I'm hearing an awful lot of pushback against it. You know, even at that informal survey that they took, it looks like there's a whopping big number, eight, maybe 80%-ish of respondents said they're opposed to the project. What do you hear? Uh, Patty, there are people who are definitely opposed to the project in this particular region. And there are people who are looking for more information. The main issue in when it comes down to it, is between risk and reward. There are environmental risks to any project, including this one, and they need to be addressed. And how do we address them? It's through information. It's through answering questions because it's through an environmental assessment process. The challenge is people have not gotten any information from their government. And that's been the root of the causes here. We have not heard from the government on what exactly will happen What's being planned? How are they going to mitigate? How are they going to lower the risk of any damages that might happen? Because there will be impacts on the environment. It's not fair to say there won't be. There will absolutely be impacts on the environment. But how do we minimize those? Government hasn't provided any answers to the people in this region about that. There will also have to be on the side of benefits. How do we maximize those benefits? Because if the if this type of project does not benefit the people that live in the region, then why are we doing it? So those are key issues that need to be addressed. And people need answers to their questions. And they need their government to provide those answers, not simply to rely on a company to provide those answers. They need to hear from their government. And that's what they've done. They've written their government. People have legitimate concerns about the impacts on the environment. And they need those questions answered. 
And that's the kind of lack of communication that's coming from the government or not coming from the government, I should say, that's causing a lot of this anxiety for people. They need the government to come out and sit down with them and talk about what exactly will happen and how it will be dealt with. This industry has the potential to be a game changer in Newfoundland and Labrador. Possibly, at sure. The, at the same time, we cannot allow any industry to simply come in and not be accountable in terms of the impacts on the environment. But again, it's about getting the answers. And I think the challenge is government needs to be front and center here on this file. Yeah, and it's not like I'm opposed to it because it's easy enough for me to have one thought on it because I don't live out there. So the people in the area, their concern is, will their concerns actually be heard? And, you know, even things like this, like the wind measurement towers that are going to be installed here to take some, you know, to compile some data, okay. But when people see land being cleared before the environmental assessment has been released, then that's, of course, the, the types of things that lead them to be even more opposed as opposed to the government saying, okay, Here's what's happening. Here's what you can expect next week. Here's how to. Here's the implications with the environmental assessment X, Y, and Z. But we don't know. So if folks see land being cleared, they think, well, it's over. The project is going ahead in full and full stop. So that's where information is key. Had people been given a heads up and explained to them why there wasn't the requirement of a standalone environmental assessment for these wind measurement towers, maybe some people's concerns could be allayed. But because we're handling it the way we are, not so much. That's right, Patty. It's the lack of information coming from government, the lack of communication. And quite frankly, a lot of people don't trust the government. And they have a right to do that, but and probably have good reason not to. But at the end of the day, the government has a responsibility to come out to the region and to sit down with the people in the region, in the groups in the region, the uh, heads of the local service districts, the head of the councils, and to sit down and tell everybody exactly what the process will be. You know, and and how it will be done and communicating ahead of time as opposed to after the fact. You're absolutely right. So those are the things that and to make sure that those questions that people have on the environmental side of things get answered and the questions around the benefit piece get answered. Because, as I said, if the project does not provide the benefits to the local communities, then why are we doing it? Appreciate the time, Tony. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, that, uh, very, very quickly, in reference to some questions being posed uh, about that conversation, is scary thought, is, but instead of spreading the, you know, whether it be the outrage or the faux outrage, about how the rebates work in other provinces, fair enough. But, I mean, if I'm sitting in opposition, I do think it's incumbent on the actual sitting government to give us some of that information for our consideration, you know? You know, for, sometimes it's opposition for opposition's sake, but they have a critically important role. Uh, anyway, before we get to the break, let's go to uh, four. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay, how you doing? Patty, I want to talk about what happened down in Colorado. Okay. You had this uh, guy walk into a gaver. Now, I know we, we don't agree with gavers, and most people don't. Anyway, he shot and killed. But what's there to agree about uh, a gay bar? Who needs to agree with it? Well, you know, with the religious conservatives, they think that homosexuality is sinful. And those yes, but they, for those people, they just shouldn't go to those bars if that's their problem. That's right, that's right. But anyway, a man walked into this place in Colorado and uh, killed five people and seriously injured three or four more. And uh, G- you know, Injured dozens, Brian. 
there is through the thousands, and it's always the same thing. Why is it? Where did it come from? And, it's, and I'm going to tell you, Paddy, where it all came from. This all started with the Reverend Jerry Falwell and the Reverend Jimmy Swagger. Now we know who Jimmy Swagger was related to. And they started the moral majority. And they harangued gay people, except they didn't call them gay. And uh, they turned Americans against them. And no wonder people are walking with guns. Down in Florida, they did that in a, couple of, a couple of years ago. And what's after happening is that there's such a hatred out there for gay people. Uh, on your show, I think it was last year, a gay man came on your show and claimed that he had been beaten up down on George Street simply because he was gay. Now, I don't know what the truth is to that, but that was on your show last year, I think. But even people that saw it, they reported how he was being taunted with those gay slurs, though, so it's sure. safe, to under, safe to believe that that's why he was targeted. I mean, the whole business about the transphobia and certain media outlets who drive this message home about sexualizing kids and all these yeah. things, they have made it an extremely dangerous place for any member of those LGBTQ communities. It's so bloody unnecessary. If your religion opposes it, then just don't participate. I mean, that's the kind of options we have here. Like, same thing with people who are opposed to organized religion. As long as it doesn't get, uh, as long as it doesn't impede your life, just don't participate if that's how you feel about these things. But, I mean, the person who's responsible for this shooting, his track record and history of the utterances he's blurted regarding members of that community are quite clear, and they're fueled by politics. It's just, it's, well. dis it's disgraceful. And last word, and then I'll let you have the last one. Um, to know that, Unarmed people in that club were able to jump in and to save countless lives is an incredible part of that story. And they say that was their one safe space in that community of Colorado Springs. Now what? So, devastating story. Well, Patty, I'll end off by saying that I taught uh, in Western Canada for 31 years, and some of my students were gay. And one gay student said to me one day, he said, Brian, or he said, uh, call me by my name. And he said, I'll pose you a question. Now, he said, you're from Newfoundland. And he said, you didn't ask to be born there. You were born there. And I certainly wouldn't give up my citizenship for anything. I love the problems. And he said, how about if somebody accosted you because you're from Newfoundland, even though you were, you had no, I mean, you had no, uh, you had no, uh, you know, you were just born. And it's the same way with gay people. I've been hearing since I was in Brother Rice High School, then I was in a high school there. And the teachers down there, some of the Christian brothers said that gay, uh, homosexuality is a, is, is a sinful thing. And people choose that. And that garbage is still going around, Patty. And that's why we're having what's happening in Colorado. We had that happen to that man down on George Street. And it's going to get worse. And now what's even worse is that Mon uh, Mike Pompeo, the former uh, Secretary of State under, uh, uh, under Trump, him and his crowd are saying that they are going around with a, a, a platform saying that the most dangerous people in the United States are teachers and the head of the teachers' union. So I would imagine within the next couple of years you're going to see a bunch of teachers being shot. Well, 
That's what, what happens when we allow our politicians to go crazy. Anyway, Paddy, thanks for letting me come on your show. Appreciate the time. God bless you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, and anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Off the top of the program, we did indeed talk about the findings of the 2022 fishery audit done by environmental group Oceana Canada. Join us online. Number six is the director of science at Oceana Canada. That's Dr. Robert Rangeley. Dr. Rangeley, you're on the air. All right, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Thanks for, for making inviting time. Me here. Uh, happy no, to have you. you on. So this, the findings are really quite troubling. Regardless of the investments made with the uh, amendments to the Fisheries Act in 2018, regardless of the amount of money at the Oceans Protection Plan, what we're not seeing is any forward momentum in the protection of fish stocks. What did we find in this report? Well, you, you got it right on there. We're we're getting a poor return on our investment to regrow our stocks. And essentially, this is six years of audit, so we've got a good time series here. We're showing right now that we have we can only verify that 30% of our fish stocks are healthy. And uh, there's a growing number that are uh, have been in the critical state and uh, quite a number of uncertain. And we can we can you know, there's answers to those uh, those questions um, around the uncertainty. Uh, the science needs to be invested to give us a health status for those other stocks and then invest in the rebuilding plans. Um, you know, the urgency has never been greater. Uh, our, our report also showed uh, evidence from uh, increasing threats to, uh, from climate change. And uh, we're not really bringing into account uh, climate change into our management decisions. So it's sort of adjusting our our fisheries, where we fish and how we fish and how much we fish uh, to take into account climate change. So there's urgency. There is some. Uh, there is a big opportunity, and that comes with uh, rebuilding our depleted fish stocks. Is now the law, and uh, it's first time, first time in 150 years of a fisheries act, and uh, now uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans needs to get on with the job and uh, start acting on uh, new rebuilding plans for those depleted stocks. There's so many confusing things, and in this province, there's always been the headbutting between the inshore and the offshore, and fishing when when their spawn is ongoing, and the type of mm-hmm. gear being used. Where do you start in fishery building? Because the harvesters will say their their com- contribution to the health or the lack thereof of a fish stock is not the number one concern. So how do you start a rebuilding plan pragmatically? Well, there's there's very few things we can control in the environment uh, uh, with respect to the changes. All we can really control is our, our fishing our fishing rates and uh, perhaps the timing of fishing and size distributions and so on. And that's a critical part of a rebuilding plan. Um, and so, what we haven't typically done is actually planned for success, planned for the future of our fisheries. And that's what a rebuilding plan is. Now, mind you, it's only a plan. You have to make decisions uh, in, in, you know, based on that plan and the best available science. We have six rebuilding plans in Canada for 33 depleted stocks. And uh, quite frankly, some of those plans aren't worth the paper they're written on. So um, very clearly, uh, we do, do need those plans. There's new guidelines for how to write a good rebuilding plan. That sets in motion uh, harvest control rules, which then are required to be undertaken uh, by the, the, you know, the regulations for that stock. And uh, the, the fishing industry has to follow that. Um, you know, 
we're also very, very hesitant to scale back a total allowable catch or maybe even close a fishery. That's the worst case scenario. But, uh, you know, taking that shorter term pain for the longer term gain, uh, I know that's a cliche, but, uh, you know, fish need time sometimes to regrow. And when we're constantly uh, applying that pressure and then there's external pressures uh, on them, uh, that's a cumulative impact. And basically, they're populations of, you know, animals. They need to grow. <laughs> they, we need to allow them time to reproduce and to, um, you know, make more fish. In this province, of course, the industry is still a, a massive uh, subject of economic importance and of, I guess, controversy sometimes as well. Uh, just a question about process at Oceana Canada. We do know that DFO is unable to do either their spring or fall fish stock surveys this year, issues with aging vessels and trying to get the new ones in play. How do you guys compile the data to come up with the results of assessing 194 fish stocks? Yeah, I mean, that that's all that data comes really from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and we're deeply concerned, as is industry and everyone else, for the uh, the decline in uh, uh, survey capability with uh, loss of vessels. So that's going to be a problem. I'm, I'm quite concerned about that for our next year, our 2023 audit. Um, you know, it, the thing, the counter to that, of course, we have to remember is we're never going to have perfect information, and um, and there's always it's always going to be controversy, and there's always going to be arguments about the fish. But we've got to have a about uh, you know managing the fish. But you know we've got to get down to the fundamentals here, and that means uh, using the best available science, uh, managing in in under the under situations and of uncertainty. Other way, another way of saying that is take more of a precautionary approach. Um, do no harm. And uh, remember that those fish need to be there for future generations of Newfoundlanders and for the future, gener- future value of the seafood industry. And uh, for many stocks, we're just scraping the barrel here, bottom of the barrel. And, um, and you know, we need to give those stocks a chance to uh, recover, regenerate, and uh, add increasing value to fish in the future. And I guess uh, that's why the focus and the recommendations surrounding forage fish, whether it be capelin, mackerel, or herring. Uh, does Oceana Canada, because this is something that just happened in this uh, city, this province last week, was different stakeholders, different levels of government with the so-called SEAL Summit. Does Oceana Canada look at the ecosystem balance regarding the numbers of seals and what they consume? Because for some people here, that's the go-to. If when the cod moratorium was brought in in 1992, there was an estimated 3.5 million seals off the coast. Now it's somewhere between 7.5 and 8 million. And fish harvesters will say they think that's the number one concern beyond the catch rates that they see or their total allowable catch. Does Oceana, Oceana Canada look at the seal population? Well, we we certainly follow that that uh, evidence, and and fishing all, all sources of mortality uh, need to be taken into account uh, when management decisions are made, and uh, you know pr- uh, predation by seals and, and other animals out there, you know very clearly um, are part of that natural mortality. There's not a lot we can do about it. That's the thing. So they need to be taken into account with respect to um, setting annual quotas for those fish. And in some locations and in some situations, uh, you know, seals are the major predator. But what our, our role as a, you know, 
in fisheries and the role in fisheries must be to take that sort of surplus production. So whatever the sources of mortality are, um, if if we can't control those sources of mortality, then we need to um, you know make sure we don't add uh, additional mortality that's going to cause the stock to decline or fail to recover. Yeah, and we all in this province, we find it a little bit confusing where DFO considers the seals in the Gulf a problem, but not seals off our shores, because the seals are the seals are the seals, and they have a very similar diet regardless of the body of water they're swimming in. Uh, I'll give you the last uh, opportunity. Last word to you. Uh, final thoughts on this year's 2022 fish audit. Yeah, well, it, uh, the message is is loud and clear. Uh, you know, Department of Fishery and Oceans needs to list those stocks under the rebuilding regulations and get on with the job. Uh, they also need to invest in the science. That's that's pretty clear as well. And um, um, you know, it, it is about investment and getting return for investment, uh, which really means you know jobs and fishing opportunities. Really appreciate you making time for the program this morning, Dr. Rangeley. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for your interest. Take yeah. good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, Dr. Robert Rangley is the Director of Science at Oceana Canada. The numbers are pretty stark. They really are. You know, 17% of the uh, stocks assessed, that's 194 of them, are in the critical zone. And rebuilding models, just think about it, 1992, Cod Moratorium. How far ahead are we now? compared to then. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Michael Zero wants to talk about an issue with keeping his son from phone therapy. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Michael, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Patty. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning to you. Listen, I'd, first of all, I'd like to acknowledge uh, you and your crew and what you do. I worked in the field of, uh, I trained as a community and clinical psychologist and worked in mental health for over 50 years, believe it or not. And I know the impact that uh, you and your team and the show can have, especially people struggling with issues that uh, should be relatively easy to deal with sometimes in art. And uh, mine is one of those right now. I, first of all, thank you again. Thank you for that, Michael. Uh, I have a son. Uh, I really refer to him as the eternal child. He's 31 years old. He can't toilet himself. He can't do very much for himself, actually. My call today is to advocate on his behalf. Uh, I've done a lot of advocacy work for autism, but that's that's not very important here right now. Uh, he, uh, my son Elliot, has autism and cerebral palsy and a number of conditions related to that. Uh, three years ago, I had to come back to Newfoundland to take care of my mom's home. She was very ill and nursed her. Um, she passed away just before COVID. She was one of those grand Newfoundland ladies, and uh, like so many of ours. And uh, my son and I, since that time, have had to rely on the telephone. Uh, he doesn't like the Zoom because of his, uh, his particular condition. And he loves the phone. And we do uh, affinity therapy from the Child Study Center at Yale University, my version of it. Uh, two sessions a day, two two-hour sessions a day for the last three years. We've banked over 3,000 hours on the phone. And uh, it... it it keeps us both uh, connected, and it's also vital to him. Uh, within the last, uh, when my mom passed and I was executing her estate, I, uh, I, in June, of, uh, I decided to switch the services, most of the services, because it was, it was uh, to everyone's benefit. 
And I just did the simple thing of going from one provider to Bell Alliant, which I can name in this case because that's the people I'm dealing with, <clears throat> June 24th. And because we had a really nice summer, as everybody knows, uh, never had a problem till November. And it started October 12th, as soon as we had a bit of wind or rain. And uh, this absolute lifeline uh, for both of us, the telephone, which we've had the same number, by the way, since it was Newfoundland Telephone and, and the other provider. I don't ever remember ever not having a phone for 24 hours, I guess, as a child we must have in the old days. But, uh, you know, there was always somewhere you could call or get a fix. Well, <clears throat> I switched over to Bell, and since then, since uh, November 2nd, I've had three different uh, technicians come into my house. They put all new systems right from the pole down, and they changed. All they did basically was change all the equipment that they put in. And uh, still, whenever it rains and whenever, like yesterday, I tried to call you about this because we're just at wit's end. And uh, because my son's reaction when he doesn't talk to me, uh, can, he can get violent, and, and it can be very, it can go south pretty quickly um, for the people on the other end. And so this is this is vital to to his well-being and for his you know his life and uh, growth and development across the lifespan every domain of existence. And uh, so I'm just at wit's end because I've had these guys in. I get the phone one day. I don't whenever it rains or the wind blows or you know it's mostly wind. There's nothing. So I, this seems to be a line issue. I've talked to lots of experts about it and. Uh, it seems to be more of a something up the line. And it's not just a telephone line. I think it's the line of command or whatever within Bell itself. I, uh, uh, about three weeks ago, I stopped phoning them. I, uh, one of the last technician was here. I offered to do a CV for him. He was such a nice young gentleman. I'm not faulting. I'd like to shout out, actually, the Bell employees. And I, anybody else who's working in these times and coping with the uh, the stress and strain of just of existing right now. You can imagine what it's like for my son, who has a condition that's basically defined by a lack of social reciprocity, and we're in a we're in a circumstance for the past three years of social isolation. So this telephone call, my call may seem trivial, I guess. Absolutely not trivial. So are, does the provider acknowledge that there is a wire issue, a cable issue? They. They simply, uh, and I've had others involved, and believe me, we've, I've been blamed for not being ag aggressive enough in my pursuit of this because I tried to treat everybody human, like a human being. Uh, they, they won't respond. In the, since two weeks now, this young man gave me his work number, and I leave that number, and I know how it all passes up the line. All these uh, calls are monitored, apparently. And uh, they just won't even respond now. They, they won't reply to us. And so I was faced with the dilemma of telling my son, now dad's going to try to get this fixed, you know. Uh, of the only thing I could do is try to call, understand they have some regional, I think it's headquarters in uh, Halifax. I know people have attempted to get in touch with those people, letter writing or leaving a message and be told because it's headquarters you can't leave a message. And uh, mail, you never really know where it's going to. And, uh, the, you know, I have the bundle with these people. And uh, I'm basically a situation I had to call you out of desperation. And I know it seems like a, perhaps, you know, compared to the fishery and a lot of other things in people's lives, I'm 
not saying that this is more important, but... Well, it's important. Uh, I can tell you right now, uh, the relationship between father and son and the, the treatment or supports and services that the child needs uh, is an important topic for me, Michael. I can guarantee you that much. So hopefully this will light a fire under the provider to acknowledge that it has real-life implications here. It's not just about reduced speeds while I'm trying to watch hockey on my, my, my laptop. This is big stuff, so hopefully this will have some positive impact. And I have, you know, medical appointments, and the other night I had the thing with my eyes because I'm almost 70 years of, old, of age, but, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be healthy. I was I ran out the Crow, uh, Crow Gulch Trail today and followed a, an old tugboat out the Bay of Islands, so, you know, it's pretty beautiful. But this part of our life is making our life right now unbearable. Uh, and uh, I was hoping that, you know, I, I've heard that, you are a person that can get people to on the line or to talk to me. Like, I, someone has to, you know, I, I hate to have my hand out here, but need some help in trying to get someone. To, I have no way of contacting Bill right now, uh, Patty. So did, didn't you say you had a point of contact name? Yeah, I had the, the last technician. I won't give you his name. No, that's fine. I don't want to reflect poorly on that young man because both the young fellows who came here, they're climbing up poles and doing everything, and and you know I don't I really don't know. I, they were they were gentlemen. Uh, the people I've talked to three times in uh, in the Philippines have been wonderful in terms of community because I've gone through all the customer service things you try to do. You know. Well, yeah. I tell you, Michael. Before I do have to go to the news, I'm late, but I do have a contact at the company. No promises that I can make anything happen, whether it be quickly or ever. But I will make a phone call on your behalf. Thank you very much, sir. Okay. I wish you good luck. Thanks for this this morning. All right. Thank okay, you. Okay, Michael. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's see if I can make that call after the show. Let's take a break. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number 10 and say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament, elected in and serving the folks of the Long Range Mountains. She's also the Minister of Rural Economic Development. That's Goody Hutchings. Good morning, Minister Hutchings. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. How are you this morning? Very well, thank you. How about you? Pretty great, my friend. Look, I just wanted to call and tell our listeners about the great announcement we made yesterday. Uh, it's the Oil to Heat Pump Affordability Grant. So, Patty, this is targeted at really low-income um, folks to get them off oil heat. So it's a simple program. I know people might say, oh, federal government doesn't do anything simple, but this one is. Um, you have to be a homeowner, uh, have to be able to prove that oil is your, your main source of heat. It has to be your primary residence. And you just need to be able to, to have the documentation to do that. And then have a cost estimate from, you know, a qualified, you know, contractor supplier. So it, it'll cover purchase and installing, you know, a cold climate heat pump. Uh, if you need to do any electrical or mechanical upgrades to your house, if you need to remove an oil tank, so all of that would be covered. And the good news is, once you fill out the application, uh, you can get that uh, $5,000 upfront. The other good thing is, it's stackable. I know the province has a program as well, so you can stack with the provincial program. And also, if people have availed of any of the other grants under our Greener Homes programs, you can use it use it also there. So we're truly really targeting folks that um, need this, low-income earners, uh, low-income folks that can avail of this to get off oil and save thousands of dollars in heating their home. 
So the cutoff, let's say I'm a single person, I own my own home, and I meet all the eligibility requirements. So the cutoff there is $26,570. If I do use oil as my primary source of heat, and I take that out, including the tank out, this still provides an economic barrier for so many people because whether it be inspections, whether it be uh, electrical wiring that has to be adjusted, whether it be the number of heat pumps that have to be installed to actually adequately heat the home or add electric uh, baseboard heaters, it still comes down to a barrier where some people will look at it and say, that sounds great, but if the price tag ends up being $10,000, then the $5,000 won't cut it for so many people. So the cutoffs seem to be pretty low when there's some pretty big hurdles that have to be cleared financially if you're going to make the move. True, Patty, but it's stackable, remember. And I yeah. know the province, the province has a program out there too. So avail of both of them. And, you know, that would should cover the majority of the cost to put it in because we've done the homework on that. And if you avail of both programs, you'll be able to get that done. Okay, so we'll see how many homes take uh, take up uh, this program. I know Atlantic Canadians, I think much differently than the rest of the country, do have a significantly higher percentage of homes that use oil-fired heat versus some other options like out in Alberta, for instance, natural gas, we'll say. So this program is absolutely going to help some folks. I'd like to move on, and this sticking with home heating. Not everyone's going to make the transition, and now we're told that come July the 1st of next year, the province will be on the federal carbon tax plan, which also comes with the rebate. But the conversation here and the highlight of the bilateral agreement on carbon tax that uh, then-Premier Ball negotiated was an exemption on home heating fuels. What can you tell us about how it's going to work next July regarding home heating fuels and carbon tax? So, Patty, as much as I would love to tell you, if I stole Seamus' thunder, he'd be upset with me. I know Seamus is coming on later today to give you the details, but I can tell you I'm really excited about the backstop program and what it's going to do for every single Newfoundlander and Labradorian and all Canadians. But like I said, if I gave you the details, Seamus would shoot me, so I can't do that. But I am pleased with it. The work is amazing that's gone into it, and it is going to help Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and all Canadians, and people will receive more than what they paid in. But, Patty, look, I want to remind everybody what happened out on the southwest coast, you know, with the hurricane. Remind people what happened this summer with the fires in Central. Like, we all have to combat the climate crisis that we're in. Um, you know, like we've, we're, we're seeing, look at the weather you guys had on the weekend. Uh, we're seeing the impact of climate change, and we have to make sure that we're giving the tools to everybody to be able to, you know, fight that and make sure that we're addressing it for the future. You know, we're not talking about the storms that happened every hundred years. We're talking about storms that are happening far too often, fires that are happening far too often, floods that are happening far too often. And we have to do our bit to make a difference for the environment, or our province, sadly, is going to look totally different in the years to come. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, portions of your federal riding and the whole concept between Canada signing an MOU or Declaration of Intent with Germany. Same thing with the town of Stephenville and the province. So green hydrogen probably does have a big future, and we can be part of it. There's still a lot of unknowns for a lot of people here in the province regarding that potential project, but the province says no money will come in from them. But there's absolutely federal pockets of money for these types of programs. You mentioned the environment. How do you couple any, couple any environmental concerns with rural economic development on plays like this? And what do you know about the project? So there are many projects, Patty. There are many, many projects throughout Newfoundland and Labrador, or potential projects, I should say. Most of them are in the provinces of Bailiwick now, as they're going through various issues of on-land, of Crown lands, and the Environmental Act. Anybody that has any questions, I encourage them to reach out because the province is doing their due diligence. But look, I'm going to tell you, 
Newfoundland and Labrador and Atlantic Canada has a chance to be world leaders in the hydrogen world. Um, we, you know, and sadly, it, you know, hydrogen was around long before, but sadly, this war in Ukraine has kind of highlighted. We see what our, our friends in Germany are going through, and they are looking for hydrogen providers. This can be a game changer for Atlantic Canada and, Atlanta, and, and Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. And on the environmental front, you know, uh, for those of us who have had, had the ability to travel the world, there are, there are windmill farms everywhere. The technology has changed over the years. And it is a way of the future. There is a way to do it hand-in-hand with the environment. And I think we've got to look at all options to provide good, solid, well-paying jobs. Uh, Look, I was stuck in the airport on, on Sunday with flight challenges and, you know, chatting to a lot of the people there from my riding that I know that have to travel to go to work. And every single conversation was, my God, Goody, I'd love to be able to have a good paying job that I could stay home, that I don't have to do this. And most of them specifically said, are we going to see these hydrogen projects get underway? You know, I'm a pipe fitter out west. I'm a truck driver up north. I would love to be able to come home and work. And I think when we have to step back and look at the economic opportunities as well as the environment, yes. But the two can go hand in hand. They've gone hand in hand in other areas of the world. And I think we've got to look at that here. Look, there's nobody who loves the environment better than I do, but there's a way to make sure that we protect our, our treasures and also have good paying jobs and that Newfoundland and Labrador can be part of the hydrogen world. That, that's going to happen. So let's make sure we are part of that and not in a few years saying, oh my golly, we missed that opportunity. Yeah, a significant number of jobs will be short-term in the construction phase. Operational jobs, very few, especially when we only talk about one phase of world energy, GH2. I see numbers like 30. So yeah, there might be hundreds of jobs during construction, but that'll be short-lived. Uh, you know, we all just want to know what the backstops need to be and the guardrails that need to be put in place. We need to know exactly what's in it for us economically. Because if we're talking about environmental concerns and different, less damaging sources of power, green hydrogen is great, but the beneficiary will be Germany, not us. So there's still some more economic questions that I think people would like some answers to on top of environmental concerns. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister Hutchings. Thank you. Yeah, no problem, Patty. And I encourage people to reach out to the proponents. Uh, you know, I've spoken to, to most of the proponents that are that are interested in doing work in Newfoundland and they love to sit down and chat to communities and talk about just what you just mentioned so I encourage people to reach out to the proponents as always Patty great chatting appreciate the time you too take care bye-bye it's Goody Hutchings she's the Minister of Rural Economic Development the Liberal Member for the Long Range Mountains and this is not anyone poo-pooing it but the real benefit on the energy side will be across the Atlantic so you know whether it be environmental concerns or economic issues and questions I don't think any of them are unjust. And uh, we will indeed have Mr. Risley back on the program to talk about exactly that. Tom called earlier and he made uh, some concerns known about the cost of mailing out the COVID test, the rapid antigen test. He had now, since, as he says in my Twitter feed, he has it from a good source that this was by far the lowest cost option. We'll see if we can get some numbers for your consideration. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to climate and energy policy specialist and researcher. That's Dr. Angela Carter joining us on line number two. Dr. Carter, you're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It's nice to be here. We haven't spoken before, Patty. I, I don't, I'm not so, so, so sure we have. Uh, Dr. Carter, first off, were you in attendance at COP27 in Egypt this go-around? 
No, I was here in Conception Bay, all <laughs> cuddled in. <laughs> okay, so one of the big headline grabbers from it regarding Canada is Minister Guibo, when addressing the conference, said that Canada was unwilling to sign on to an agreement that would phase out fossil fuel usage in full, very much unlike signing on to the agreement to phase out coal fire generation. What did you make of the minister's position? Because it sort of doesn't jive with his background in the environment. It doesn't jive with his background, and it doesn't jive with the climate science. And in fact, it doesn't even jive with the International Energy Agency. So this is our best information that we have that, you know, the oil companies them, themselves lean on for analysis. This agency is telling us that if we're going to stay within some sense of climate safety, we just can't do it. We, we cannot continue as we have been doing. So, yeah, it was, it was really surprising to hear Minister Gilbo uh, take that position. I mean, and some of the catchphrases and stuff that are used in this type of conversation are so all-encompassing, it's hard to break them down. Let's start with just transition. So the argument made by the industry here is that if the transition is going to take however long it's going to take, I don't know what that number would be, but they'll say if there's going to be some oil used, and they'll talk about the, there's no such thing as green oil. I'll, I'll get that off my uh, okay, out of my mouth good. right away. So there's no <laughs> such thing. i ready for that, Yeah, <laughs> there is no such thing, and everybody knows that. But if you look at the carbon intensity off our shore compared with the national average, certainly when compared to the oil, the oil sands in Alberta, or even compared with the international averages, I know downstream emissions have to be considered, but the argument that people will make here is, why not use the less carbon intensive uh, opportunities here versus use the opportunities elsewhere that are uh, absolutely worse, even when you include down, downstream emissions? Okay, so I'll tell you what, I'm going to say one thing about that, and then I'm going to go in a direction that you probably didn't expect. Okay. I'm going to talk about the the oil demand side of it, which I I think is the looming risk now for Newfoundland and Labrador that we really have to start paying attention to. Um, Look, oil and gas and coal are the lead causes of emissions that are causing the climate crisis. Oil is climate crisis. And so... Less emissions, higher emissions per barrel, you know, all we can get lost in all of that. But the reality is that if we're trying to get to climate safety, we've got to, at very least, stop expanding oil production. We've got to stop the expansion. And then we're going to talk about the gradual wind down and phase out. So, but let's put all of that aside. And I mean, that's, that's a lot to put aside, right? Because we're talking about climate safety for our kids in Newfoundland and Labrador, melting in Labrador, fires in Central, huge storms and wreckage in the South. The climate risk is a big one, and Newfoundland and Labrador is contributing to that because of the oil that we produce, we produce offshore. But let's put all that aside for a second and talk about the economic risk. All of our oil goes to the United States, virtually all of it, and it's virtually all being used for transportation, so filling up gas tanks in the United States. The United States is currently in a race to get off of fossil fuels for transportation. They're electrifying their transportation systems. So when you look at what's happening in the United States and globally, what we're seeing is global oil demand that will be in decline by 2030 and then is going to fall off a cliff after that. So we've got about seven years left of existing oil demand as we know it right now then we are in big trouble because the country that is taking our exports are specifically trying to move away from needing that product. What are we doing, Patty? If we were looking at this as a business person would, we would know that we are in danger. Would that concern 
be more held in the boardrooms of the oil companies or in the halls of the Confederation Building because demand and the economic upside and opportunity would be a business evaluation versus you know, if we back out uh, government money going into these projects and the silliness that is equity stakes. So wouldn't that be more a boardroom decision than a Confederation biz- business uh, building decision? You know, you'd think it would be, but the thing is, is that the province of Newfoundland and Labrador and the federal government spends an incredible amount of money fostering the oil and gas sector and has done so since the 1960s. If you calculated up that number of all of the subsidies and infrastructure and research and education and training, all of the money that governments have put towards the industry to make it what it is today, citizens would be astounded. I mean, we're, we're talking billions and billions of dollars. Exxon this year in 2022 is having its profits doubled. It's because of what happened, the geopolitics in the Ukraine. And we just, in Newfoundland and Labrador, the government has just made it possible for Exxon to get an $80 million subsidy for an incentive to drill. I mean, this is like giving Bill Gates money to go buy a computer. So the the government of Newfoundland and Labrador is funding the sector and is also banking on the success of the sector for the health of the economic health of the future uh, of of the the future economy. Right. So. So, yeah, we are tied up in it. And the other thing is the opportunities. Right. So that's all the, the big, scary stuff. Right. That's the economic loss of stranded assets that could be coming our way. But I've had an opportunity through a recent research project to go and study in Denmark and some other countries that are specifically transitioning away from oil and gas. And you know what, Patty? They're not doing it for climate reasons. I mean, that's part of the story. But they're doing it because they are cashing in on the, the clean sector, um, the, the clean sectors that are coming. So in the case of Denmark, this is offshore wind. Patty, they can't find the workers that they need to fulfill the demand for the offshore turbines that they are cranking out from the port that used to be an oil and gas dependent port. That's the future, and that's where we need to go. But instead, we're looking in the rearview mirror at what was going to save us from poverty and underdevelopment. Well, that was in 1997. The, The economy now, the energy economy, is going in a different direction. And you know who knows that? The oil and gas companies. Because they spend as much money as any other sector of the economy to look at their next business opportunity. Because they're not in it for anything but profit. I mean, that's basically what big business is anyway. But especially in this, in, in this industry, it's about the profit. And if they see oil demand numbers creeping down and eventually falling off a cliff, they know for their long-term sustainability, they have to invest in this transition as well. And they are doing it. Now, of course, that comes across as very counterintuitive, but we also know it to be true. Let's talk about the transition and what it means for other fuels. So, you know, natural gas would be better than oil, how it was currently produced and refined. So there's going to be some there's going to be some sort of transition. I don't know exactly what it looks like because it won't all all of a sudden be, you know, uh, tidal power, solar power, wind power. There's going to be some in between years. Where do we look? Okay, so the natural gas, I, I, I am cautious about who, who says the arguments that we come to believe as common sense. Oil and gas companies have spent a lot of public relations money and time convincing us that natural gas is going to be a bridge fuel. I'm gas. just asking your perspective, not, not, you know, not necessarily the oil company's perspective. because well, that's What, what I'm course. saying is that it's, it, natural gas is not the solution. It's a fossil fuel. We need to get off of fossil fuels. That's oil, that's gas, that's coal. 
And so we need to be careful about listening to the oil industry or the gas industry saying, actually, no, 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 we have the solution here. Um, oh, and by the way, we're going to keep profiting from that. We need to get our information from the people who are actually doing the work who are not interested in profiting from the oil and gas sector. All of the analysis that I read from independent and credible sources indicate that we have all the energy that we need, solar and wind, to be able to get where we need to go in terms of emissions by 2030, 2040, and 2050. And what is so fascinating here and an opportunity for us is that it's cheaper already solar and wind it's cheaper than fossil fuels which is why you have this rush to the exits now in countries that are trying to leapfrog over fossil fuels and go right to clean energy yeah it's good for the climate it's also energy security for citizens cheaper energy for people and now i'm not talking about mega hydro I'm not talking about, you know, green hydrogen from mega wind that's going to be exported. The profits are going to be exported somewhere else, and it's going to be done without the consent of local communities. I'm not talking about that kind of energy, which is why it has to be a just transition. We've got to think about what's going to be right for people, jobs, community development. And this is, this is the key thing, I think. You know, we've been pursuing oil here in this province since 1997 for 25 years, and we did it to get out of poverty and underdevelopment. Here we are, back facing the same problems, unemployment, poverty, inequality, tens of thousands of families not being able to access food. What has changed in our society? I mean, this is, these are the questions that I think we need to ask. So when the oil companies come forward or government comes forward saying oil is our solution, I think we know better now, and we need to do something that keeps us in mind, the common good of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. I really appreciate the time this morning. We're over time for the newscast, but uh, thank you very much for this, Dr. Carter. Anytime, Patty. Thank you kindly. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Angela Carter, and uh, let's see here. Let's go ahead and take a break. How are we doing on the phones there, David? When we come back, opportunity for you to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Nadine Talek. She's a, a member of the Environmental Transparency Committee. Good morning, Nadine. You're on the air. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it. Regarding the environmental transparency, and this is about World Energy GH2 and the other wind proposals, it's curious that World Energy gets all the headlines when there's something like 31 or 32 proposals on the minister's desk. What are the questions that you're asking? What don't you know about the environmental concerns? Uh, well, the environmental concerns here, we had 31 uh, applications on the, uh, as you say, on the desk for up for bids. But according to the bid crown lands here now, we're only going to hear about this in December. So the applications right now, uh, we feel um, we feel that um, you know um, hasn't been, um, I guess, very transparent uh, with the people here right now, uh, seeing that uh, there's only one application of we know of the World Energy GH2. Uh, which has been announced since uh, in the proposal um, as of June. So uh, right now, we they are the only ones that we know of, and uh, I guess through the uh, their proposal and um, I guess the EIS guidelines and all the um, information coming in for um, the EIS, um, the guidelines for assessment uh, for their proposal, which is due in December third. It's all a concern because it seems like everything is being pushed 
and that we feel that the project is um, in some guidelines uh, here uh, has to be um, really looked over because um, uh, we have construction going on here on the Port of Port area now in areas which is very much of a concern because it's supposed to be put up a Met Tower. And here for and to the environmental EIS uh, statement, uh, you know, from Eric Watton is saying that, you know, it's needed to better understand the, the significance of a potential environmental effects. So we have a lot of concern because there's no guidelines here for the construction here on the Port Port Peninsula at the moment, which is right now, um, uh, you know, going into kilometers that are, are more than, uh, you know, what we are been hearing from the world gh2 so what is all the uh construction about uh, for one met tower and why are they taking up so much land and clearance of the uh the wood and where are our government officials here uh, you know checking in on this construction going on right now so there's a lot of concerns here there's a you know a, a lot of uh, i guess not transparency with the people here but wouldn't some of the environmental concerns only be fully understood when the environmental assessment has actually been undertaken and completed? Well, you'd think you would understand that, but we're into an area here on the Port of Port Peninsula. We have a lot of sensitive areas here. Uh, if you have no guidelines in the area here now, you know, what areas are they in supposed to be the sensitive areas? Because we have a limestone barren. Uh, you know, area here, and as well as some pro- protective plants. So at this time of the year, how can you have botanists and, you know, environmental people here, which I, which we are not seeing, uh, to be here on the Port Port Peninsula at this time of the year? We have snow on the ground here now. So once all these plants, uh, you know, uh, are uh, disturbed or, you know, the environmental, uh, you know, the roads and that construction here, there's a lot going on that uh, it's not being transparent here with the people that there's no guidelines. So, you know, we have a construction company in here. Uh, you know, uh, we feel that they're going in without any uh, pre- pre- preparation from the government, uh, we feel, because they are um, clearing roads and they're going in onto roads where uh, more kilometers in than we feel uh and the uh, digging up of um, culverts that are still laying uh, beside the roads here now. Um, nothing has been cleaned up. So the road construction is going in further than we thought was going to be proposed for these Met Towers. So there's a lot of concern. But wouldn't their provincial guidelines be in place given the fact that it was this project was approved by the government and Mr. Watton without environmental assessment. So, and you know, isn't, doesn't it also speak to sensitive areas when they backed out the Lewis Hills, for instance, which would have been phase two of World Energy GH2's plan? Well, we haven't seen the guidelines here in particular. Um, we would like to see that. And of course, uh, you know, we are in a protected area as well as the, the Blow Me Down Mountains and certain areas. Um, why is it not that we have our not our government officials here right now, uh, you know, looking over what's going on uh, with the construction here right now? And that's a great concern because we feel that the construction company, um, you know, what guidelines do they have here? And, um, you know, um, we are seeing uh, more roads being constructed uh, now. And, uh, you know, residents can't even go in 
into these areas where they want to cut their wood or their uh, rabbit hunting. They have security guards at the, uh, you know, the entrance of these roads now. And these were the roads that people did go into all of their lives, and all of a sudden they don't have access to some of these roads. So, you know, it's a lot of concern here because there's too much construction going on for what they're saying is supposed to be a, a few Met Towers. Once the environmental assessment is completed, I guess we'll all know a little bit more. How do you factor in a part of the province, a region of the province, that could really use uh, an economic uh, kick in the tail, could really use some jobs where jobs are hard to come by for so many people living in your region? How do you factor that in? Well, if the jobs were hiring local people, uh, you know, uh, at this time of point in game for the Met Towers, which were uh, seeing for maybe some security guards, but the construction companies already have their uh, people hired, so the locals here are not getting any jobs. Yeah, I'm talking uh, about the proposal, if it, if it comes to pass, with the 164 turbines and the ammonia plant and all the rest of it. Because there will indeed, even if it's just construction phase jobs, there's going to be a lot of those, and then some permanent ongoing operational jobs. How do you factor that in? Well, you would have to be trained, first of all, and according to uh, meetings uh, that we attend to and according to the Chamber of Commerce, um, you know, um, we are under the understanding that uh, you have to be highly skilled and trained and that they will be hiring a lot of uh, highly skilled trained uh, uh, immigrants. And, and that's a concern because um, we're going to be seeing a lot of, I guess, um, jobs that are going to be for people coming in for 24-7. Whether or the locals are going to be hired, uh, that's another, uh, you know, uh, big question here. I mean, we haven't, um, you know, uh, we have an area here which locals are expecting to get jobs, but um, if the company is going to be coming in, they're going to be needing highly skilled people here. And if they're going to be doing 24-hour construction, which they are stating they're going to be doing 24-7, I mean, you're going to need a lot of people working in this area. So the 164 proposed wind turbines here, you know, um, it's just too much for the port of port here. Uh, we feel that, you know, we are we believe in a greener uh, uh, energy, but at what cost? At the risk here, we're going to get industrial turbines here, which was never put on land, and there's just so much risk involved. And you know, if you if we we are not being selfish to the point that we feel that. You know, uh, we do not want jobs here, and we don't want to see the economic growth. But you have to realize that this is a new project. It's a mega project. And here on the Port of Port, we have not all the transparency coming from the government and the uh, the proponent, the World GH2, to feel that this is not a best place to have your project. But now the company has said that they would be creating training opportunities for locals as part of this, and that comes directly from Mr. Risley. Yes, and uh, and we are aware of that. Um, right now there is no training uh, into CNA as we know of to this day, but if it's going to take a year to or so to get the uh, training proposed for the locals, how are they going to get jobs when this is going to be started, hopefully, what Mr. Risley says, for 2023 so uh you know if these locals are going to go and and have the um skilled um training that uh, you know that they should be getting they're not going to hire the locals right away at just after getting out of school so you know how it doesn't make sense like when it comes to 
the the duration for the, um, uh, the the program for them to be in, and they want to start to have this uh, project uh, as, as soon as possible. So how can our locals here find jobs when the when the project is going to be? Uh, you know, hoping to start within the next year, and they're still going to be in school. So. Yeah, there's still going to be plenty of jobs that won't require really highly specialized training and or skills in construction, but I appreciate you making time for the show this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one. Amelia, you're Hello. on the air. Yes. Yes, uh, I'm calling now about uh, my friend. Like, she gave her house to her son, went to Justice Peace, paid a dollar, and uh, just went uh, So he paid two fifty for it. Well, she didn't want to keep her house no more, just pay board and lodging because right now you got to get wood and everything, right? And it's hurt, and, and her legs is bad, and she got a lot of problems. All the social service told me about what, what she done. Cut the check off on on sixteen. No more check. No more drug card. What does that have to do with the the house? Well, they're saying it considers uh thirty seven thousand dollars. Considers that sold. I said, how can I? How can she sell it when she never got no money? Well, can't she just quite simply prove through a bill of sale, verified by uh. Yes, I got that. Okay, through, so I don't get it. Through the justice piece. Didn't make no difference. Now I got a appeal letter coming in the mail and repeal it. Okay, so immediately cut off because the government thinks that she made X amount of money on the sale of the home when she made a dollar. Yes, it made a dollar. He thinks, he thinks that's sold for 37 Consider I sold. Where did they come yeah. up with that number? Do you know? Uh well, they asked me about the they asked about the land, the land, the property tax, something to consider of thirty seven thousand. What was the value? Yeah, uh, okay, but value doesn't really have much to do with sale price. Like my my house is worth exactly what someone's willing to pay for it. The assessment yes. company might not think so, but that really doesn't matter. So the ultimate consideration here is. What was the property sold for? How much money did she bring in as a result of the sale or any other source of revenue she has? And if it doesn't, never, if it isn't 37000 then listen, I'm not sure. Never, never got a cent. I got the, the son paid down 250 because she never had the money for her to get the house to give to him. It gives as a gift. Hmm. So that all makes sense, social services. Yeah, I'm not sure why it would be that way. Um he said, "That's considering now. That's the way it is." And he said, "If my if son give the house back to his mother, he lose his shape." Hmm. I don't know why that would be the way it is. It doesn't make a whole whole lot of sense. Well, by this way it is. Your phone social service detail you. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that happened the way it did there, because I'm not so not so sure that I can fully understand because a dollar is a long way from thirty-seven thousand. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now I do. Uh, she do have a letter coming in the mail, Sunday Friday, for a repeal. Okay. They, good, they said write a good letter with putting in a lot of reasons. Okay. Well, let me know how that works out. 
Yes, I will. Okay, thanks, Amelia. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, was, as we all know, even the poorest mathematicians amongst us, a dollar versus 37,000, two different kettles of fish. All right, good show. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.